Jonah 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw that what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had uh, threatened. And Jonah 4 verse 1 to 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. He became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? This is the word of the Lord. This is now the third week in our series looking at the book of Jonah. And here in chapter three, we uncover key lessons, not only to understanding the book of Jonah, but also lessons that can significantly shape and impact our spiritual life, our understanding of what it means to follow God and how God works in the world. And so looking here at chapter three, there's four things that I want to show you today. First, God does what he wants when he wants. Second, we're going to see something about God's heart. Third, something about repentance. And then fourth and finally, how God's heart leads us to repent. So God does what he wants when he wants. We'll learn something of his heart, something about repentance, and something about how to become a people who repent. So let's take a look. First, God does what he wants when he wants. What happens here in Jonah 3 is any preacher's dream. Jonah preaches a sermon, and the entire city experiences revival. Every person in the city, everything in the city is touched by God's healing. That's every preacher's dream. But here's what's interesting. Look at the sermon that Jonah preached. It's there in verse 4. Here's his sermon. 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. As sermons go, that's one of the worst in the history of the world. The only redeeming quality about it is it's short. It's not an eloquent sermon. 
It's not a sensitive sermon. It's not a sermon that's rich in application. Jonah didn't even really want the people to respond. We'll talk about that in a few moments. His heart wasn't really in it. And yet, God used that imperfect, not very eloquent, not very heartfelt sermon as an occasion to bring revival to a city. Do you know why? Because God does what he wants when he wants. And that should be an encouragement to you. Jonah's heart was not in the right place, but what you might have in common with Jonah is that throughout your life, you give yourself to things and you feel like you didn't do a good job. You feel like your efforts were imperfect. You feel like even though you tried hard, you failed. And the encouragement that we can get from point one of our sermon today is that God does what he wants when he wants because he's powerful. And though he invites us to participate in his work, he doesn't need us. He can accomplish his purposes by himself. But he invites us in to celebrate, to be part of what he's doing. But it depends on him, not you or I. On 8 February this year, at a small Christian college in Kentucky called Asbury, they had a chapel service, a normal thing that that college would do. Students would come together for a Bible study and some praise music. And so that day, there was a man preaching. He gives his sermon. And as soon as he walks off the stage, he texts his wife and he says, well, that was my latest stinker. I'll be home soon. He was discouraged about his sermon. He felt like it wasn't a good sermon. I think he said, I totally whiffed. But you know what happened? God did what he wanted. And so even though the preacher felt like the sermon was terrible, God decided that was the day that he would pour out his spirit and a revival broke out that lasted for more than a month in which hundreds of thousands of people all over the world were impacted because God decided to show up. What's the point? His strength is made perfect in weakness. You might feel like a failure. You might have actually failed, but God's work goes on. God's purposes will be accomplished. So be encouraged. Now, this is not an excuse, by the way, for laziness. This should not create an attitude where we say, well, great, doesn't matter. I can just half-heart it and it'll be. The whole story of Jonah shows us that he's really not in a good spot. We don't want to emulate Jonah here, but we want to take encouragement that his strength is perfected in weakness, that his purposes will be accomplished despite our failures because he works the way he will. And he does what he wants when he wants. Be encouraged by that. Second point, not just his work is unfolding, but second point, more at the heart of our sermon, let's look at God's heart. So here's Jonah. He goes into Nineveh, a big city. We'll talk more about the city next week. And Jonah preaches, again, not a very good sermon, but God says this is going to be the moment for revival. And he pours out his spirit. And Nineveh starts as a whole city repenting. They cover themselves in sackcloth and ashes. That's a way of showing humility. They begin fasting, which is a way of crying out in dependence on God. And then look at verse nine. The king of Nineveh says to the whole city, kind of issues a decree, a proclamation, kind of law. We have to repent. We have to turn. And look at what he says in verse nine. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion Turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Do you hear what the king is saying? 
The king of Nineveh knows we deserve judgment. I said this a few weeks ago, but the people of Nineveh, this is the capital city of the ancient Assyrian empire. Assyria was a very violent and a very brutal empire. They were merciless. They were ruthless. They deserve judgment. They deserve to suffer for their wrong. And the king knows that. So he knows we deserve to pay for our evil. Our only hope is maybe God will have compassion. Maybe God will be compassionate to us. Another word for compassion is mercy. Maybe God will show us mercy. And here's what's interesting. Go to chapter four and verse two. In a very different way, look at what Jonah says. The city repents, there's revival in Nineveh, and look at what Jonah says. See, this is what I was trying to forestall. He says to God, this is why I ran the other way, and this is why I sailed to Tarshish. Because he says, I knew, I knew it. You are gracious and compassionate. You are a God that is slow to anger, and you abound in love. And you relent from sending calamity. Now, we're going to talk about Jonah next week and his anger and frustration. But here's what Jonah's saying. God, I knew it. You can't help yourself. You're just compassion. You are just a compassionate God, even for these people who deserve judgment. And so what are we seeing here in this point of the sermon? Whether it was the king of Nineveh or Jonah, one of the prophets, what they had in common is they recognized that God was a God of compassion. That God's heart for the world, that God's heart for the city is compassion. And so here's my question for you today. When you think of God, when an idea of God comes into your mind, what do you think of? Many of us don't think of God as compassionate. We think of God as tolerating us. You know, He puts up with us. He tolerates us, but he's pretty easily exacerbated. He gets tired of us, but, you know, he has to put up with us. And the Bible says that actually God's heart, his disposition towards you, his disposition to the world is compassion. Now, what is compassion? We think of compassion as feeling pity or concern. If you see something awful, you feel sad about it, and you should. But compassion in the Bible starts with that feeling. It's a deep feeling in the gut. It's that feeling in your stomach, in the pit of your stomach, like something is off or something is wrong. And you're drawn to suffering. You're drawn towards evil. But compassion doesn't just stop with feeling. It culminates in action. It culminates in seeing something that's wrong, your heart going towards it, and then doing something to bring healing or renewal or justice. That's why when Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, it was the man who stopped to help that showed compassion. Because compassion isn't just feeling, it's doing. And the Bible says that God's very heart, the way that God chooses to identify himself is with compassion. In Exodus chapter 34, God is making a covenant with the people of Israel. And he's introducing himself. He's saying, this is who I am. This is like if God had a Twitter, this would be his bio. Like the thing of all the things that are true about him, the main thing he wants the world to know. 
And in Exodus 34, when God reveals himself, when he says, this is who I am, like this is what you should know about me, God says, I am the Lord, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Like what you need to know about me, God says, is I'm compassionate, I'm gracious, I'm slow to get angry, and I'm filled with love. That's who I am. And so my question for you today is, do you know God like that? Or do you only relate to God as a grandfather in the sky? Or as a judge who's just easily angered and exasperated all the time? Do we know the compassion of God? And here's another thing. Do you recognize that if it's true that who God is is compassion, that means God's compassion is not an activity, it's an attribute. It's not something he does, it's who he is. Which means you can never exhaust God's compassion. No matter how many times you fail, no matter how evil you've been, no matter how many ways you've fallen short, God's compassion goes deeper. It's who he is. A.W. Tozer writing a book about some of God's attributes, put it this way. If we could remember that divine compassion is not a temporary mood, but it's an attribute of God's being, then we would no longer fear that it will someday cease to be. God's compassion never began to be, but from eternity it was so. And thus it will never cease to be. Nothing that has occurred or will occur in heaven or earth or hell can change the tender compassion of our God. Forever his mercy stands, boundless, overwhelming, immense compassion. That's how God feels about you. That's how God felt about Nineveh. And let me say one more thing, so key. In verse nine of chapter three, the king of Nineveh says, who knows, maybe God will have compassion. And do you know why Jonah is so upset? If you were here the past few weeks or if you know the story, do you know why Jonah runs the other way? Because he doesn't want Nineveh to experience compassion. Why? Because God's compassion was for Israel, Jonah thought. It was for the specific people group that God chose to represent him in the world. And Jonah says, we are the people who have a special relationship to God. We deserve his compassion. But the moment God says, I want Nineveh to experience my compassion, Jonah runs the other way. But what are we learning? Jonah's heart was off. But what was God's heart? It was compassion for all people. For Nineveh too, not just Israel. God was compassionate for all the peoples of the earth and wanted his people, his servant, to go into all the world to share that compassion. Quick application. God made human beings very different. We look different. We talk different. We're from different parts of the world. We have different cultures, different ethnicities, different political ideologies. And the Bible says that those differences are God-given. They're to be celebrated and when we become Christian, even, those differences are not flattened. Difference is important. Difference is to be celebrated. But Jonah's mistake is he allowed differences to become sources of division. 
But if God's heart is compassion for all people, then that means for any follower of God, there is no place for racism, tribalism, classism, ethnocentrism at all. Because God's heart is for the world. God's heart is for the nations. God's heart is for all people. Jonah missed it, but we shouldn't. God's heart is a heart of compassion and it's for all people. Third thing we need to see today, not just he does what he wants, not just his heart of compassion, but third thing, practically speaking, we learn something here about repentance. We learn something in this passage about what it means to be a people who repent. Now, if you were here at Reality a couple months ago, we had a whole series on repentance and it was a very powerful series for our church. But there was something in that series that I never said which I didn't say because I knew we'd be saying it today. But here's what I want to show you. Biblical repentance inevitably leads to turning away from destructive behavior. Biblical repentance leads a person to turn away from destructive behavior. So look with me at verse 8. Again, the king of Nineveh, the sermon has been preached. The city is experiencing revival. So look at what the king says, verse 8 of the text. Let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? Maybe God will have compassion. Do you see what the king is saying? If we're going to turn to God... That's going to include turning away from behavior that was destructive. Now, again, we mentioned the Ninevites, very brutal, violent people, ruthless, merciless. And so the king is starting to realize if we're going to turn to God, then we have to turn away from our violence. Because violence is inconsistent with a person following God. So really repenting, really turning to God is going to mean turning away from the things that dishonor or displease God. Here's the key, and you've got to see this. Repentance, biblical repentance, is not just behavior modification. It's possible to change behavior and not repent. You can change behavior because you're afraid of consequences. Maybe you're trying to impress somebody. You can change behavior for all kinds of reasons. So just behavior modification may not be biblical repentance, but... The other side of the coin is this. You can't biblically repent without changing behavior. Because if you're persisting in any kind of behavior that is destructive, whether to self, whether to other people, or ultimately in your relationship to God, then really repenting says, I'm going to turn from that and turn towards habits and behaviors and disciplines that honor God and that show forth his love and values in the world. In other words, repentance includes change. It means turning from some things and turning towards others. So if we're going to be a people like the Ninevites who are actually repenting, it usually means there's something you've got to give up. There's something you've got to turn from. Let me just give you a couple practical steps or tips on how we can think about repentance in this way. First, accountability. I don't know how a person can really change without some accountability in their life. Accountability. Are there a couple of people who know you so well that they can ask you questions about anything that you will share anything with? A friend of mine used to say, jokingly, 
there should be a couple of people in your life who know so much about you that they could put you in jail. Now, again, it's facetious, but what's the point? Is there anyone that you bear your whole soul to? Is there anyone that you're so open and honest with that they wouldn't be surprised about anything in your life? That's biblical accountability. And you can't be a person who really changes without someone or some group of people who have a free pass to ask you about anything, to challenge you on anything, to keep you accountable. Because we don't have the resources to change by ourselves. I certainly don't. I have blind spots. I have sin and imperfection. I get weak and I get tired. I can't do life on my own. I need people to keep me accountable. And I can't really change. I can't really repent without it. Second thing, not just accountability, but another important aspect of some behavioral change is this idea of reconciliation. That sometimes sin's impact is social. It impacts our relationships. And so real repentance means seeking reconciliation. It means going after broken relationships to try to bring healing, to try to pursue peace, real peace, to confess sin where you need to, and to see as much as possible you being able to live at peace with others. Third thing, accountability, reconciliation, but consider also what you might call repair. Sometimes our actions, our behaviors lead to brokenness. We break things, we take things, we act in ways that are really hurtful. And so sometimes what repentance looks like is seeking to repair things that we've broken. One of the best examples of this in the Bible is a man called Zacchaeus. You know him if you know Bible stories. He was very tiny, wee little man. He had to climb into a tree. But he actually teaches us a lot about repentance. Because one day the tiny little man Zacchaeus encounters Jesus. And Jesus says, I want to come to your house and have dinner. And Zacchaeus is thrilled. And Jesus is there meeting him with so much grace. And Zacchaeus stands up and he says, by the way, I didn't say this. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, which meant he made his living and it was very luxurious living by taking advantage of other people. He got rich because he stole basically. So now he's there with Jesus and Jesus is in his home and he's encountering the gospel in Jesus. And you know what Zacchaeus says? I'm going to give back four times as much everything that I've stolen or defrauded from other people. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Why? Because Zacchaeus understood grace. He understood Jesus has saved me, not because I've done anything to earn it, but the way you respond to that grace is by repairing. He says, I've made my whole living taking advantage of people and now it's time to repair. Now it's time to give back, to return, to bring healing where there was brokenness. And so for all of you in all of our lives, that's going to mean something different. But you can't really change, which is part of repentance, without some degree of accountability, some pursuit of reconciliation, and a willingness to repair. That's an important aspect of repentance. And what we see here in Nineveh, we have to give up our evil ways of violence. Because it's not consistent with the life following God. What is repentance going to mean for you? What's it going to look like? And that leads us finally to ask, well, how do we become a people who repent? Because if you've ever tried to change, if you've ever tried to give up a behavior or an idea or 
a pattern in your life that you're not proud of, you know, it's really hard to do. So how do we become a people who change? And the answer is we need to see God's heart for us. We need to not just know in our heads that he's filled with compassion, but we need to experience that. The Ninevites, as I've said already, had done horrible things and they deserved judgment. Their only hope was maybe God will have compassion. But just think with me for a second. This is one of the great tensions of the Bible. Because the Ninevites know if we're going to have any hope, it's going to be because God is compassionate. But when I look at the Ninevites or when I look at other things or people or even my own heart, when I see evil, like real evil, I want there to be judgment. I want there to be justice. I want there to be a righting of wrong. And this is the tension of the Bible. The Ninevites called for compassion, but they were actually a people who deserved judgment. And it's a little problematic, isn't it? If we have a God who says to Nineveh, oh, yeah, you've done really bad things, but hey, it's okay. Like, just come on in. It's all, all's good, you know, no harm, no foul. We'd say that, I don't want a God like that. A God who minimizes or ignores injustice. So there's a real tension here. How is it that even though they had done great evil, they could cry out and actually experience God's compassion? That's the central tension of the Bible. How can a God who is holy forgive sin? How does he end evil without ending evildoers? That's the tension. And it's only resolved in Jesus Christ. It's only resolved in Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus, the night before his death, was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was praying and he knew that in a matter of hours, he'd be going to the cross. And so Jesus there in the garden, as he kneels down to pray, he says to God, his father, father, if it's possible, take this cup away from me. That's interesting. He didn't have a cup in his hand. What's Jesus praying about? What's he saying? Take this cup away from me. And the answer is Jesus is thinking about the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament of the Bible, the cup was always a symbol of God's wrath. It was a symbol of God's fierce anger. It was a symbol that sin deserved judgment. That evil doing deserved punishment. When God pours out his cup, it's the pouring out of his wrath. And now here's Jesus in the garden. He says, Father, if it's possible, take away the cup of your wrath from me. Yet nevertheless, not what I will, but yours be done. And Jesus surrenders himself to the cross. Do you know what's happening? On the cross, Jesus is drinking the cup of God's wrath. Said differently, God's fierce anger at sin was being poured out onto Jesus' shoulders. That on the cross, Jesus was bearing the judgment, the punishment that all of the sin of his people deserved. It was all crashing down on him. Do you know what that means? The king of Nineveh says, who knows? Like, who knows? Maybe God will have compassion. But friends, don't you see on this side of the cross, 
We don't say, who knows? We say, we do know that God will have compassion on his people because his fierce anger was poured out on Jesus. Because on the cross, Jesus took your sin. He took your evil. He took all the things that you've ever done wrong and he died for it. Like it literally came crashing down on him. And that's how God can be compassionate to you because he punished Jesus for your sin because Jesus died in your place. We know that God's fierce anger fell on Jesus so his compassion could never stop falling on us. And if you see that, when that truth becomes real to you, not just as an idea, not just as something a preacher says on Sunday, but when you see that every time you do something you shouldn't do. Every time there's evil in your heart or evil in your words, every time you know, yeah, I shouldn't have done that, but I did it again. All of that was on Jesus' shoulders and it's paid for. It's forgiven. It's dealt with by the son of God himself so that now because Jesus paid, you get compassion, you get mercy and kindness. If you really see that, you know what happens? You become a person who wants to repent. You become a person who says, how could I want anything other than being close to that kind of savior? And so repentance is not something we do to earn God's grace and God's love. It's something we do because we have it. It's something we do in response to such compassion that's already been given to us. So here's the ultimate application of today's sermon. It's not... Don't go out and like go out into the world and try to be a repenting person. It's look at Jesus's compassion for you. See him dying in your place. See him giving himself up in sacrifice because when you do, you will inevitably become a person who repents, who turns from self and turns to God and says, yeah, there's stuff here I've got to give up. But of course, why wouldn't I want to give it up when I see what Jesus has done for me? when I see his compassion, his love, when I see, as Paul says in Romans 2, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Do you see God's kindness and compassion for you? It's there on the cross, the cross of Jesus. Let's pray. God, help us today, help us right now as we come to our time of response to see in a whole new way, to experience in a deep way, your compassion to see Jesus dying for us and in our place. To know that in the parts of our lives where we're most ashamed and the things that we want to hide from everybody else, that you want to run towards us with your compassion, with your mercy. Help us to see that today, to experience that today, and as a result, to be a repenting people, a people who turn from the things that are going to destroy us anyway and turn to you to receive more of your love and grace. So help us to do that now, we pray. In Jesus' name and for his glory. And everyone said, amen.